Welcome to this podcast uh, series that's being supported by Longwoods Publishing. We want to bring you a series of stimulating conversations with leaders and researchers within the nursing profession and the health system in Canada. I am your host, Kathleen McMillan, a nurse with over 50 years experience in the profession who has held roles in academia, administration and policy, as well as clinical practice. What have we learned from this experience with the COVID-19 pandemic that can build resilience for any future shock on this scale? Our topic for today is focus on nursing, taking the temperature of the profession. And today I'm so pleased to welcome to our podcast, Linda Salas, who has been the president of the 200,000 strong Canadian Federation of Nurses Union since 2003. Linda is recognized as the foremost advocate on behalf of nurses in Canada. A proud New Brunswicker, Linda is an alumnus of the University of Moncton Bachelor of Science in Nursing program, and her clinical practice has been in the ICU, emergency, and labor and delivery. Nursing unions play a vital role in representing nurses in collective bargaining, addressing workplace issues, and representing the views of frontline practicing nurses in a variety of settings. They represent nurses to decision makers in government and to employers. Nurses have been unionized in Canada since the early 1970s. Welcome, Linda. I'm so glad that you could join our conversation today. Bonjour, Kathleen. I'm very honored to be here. Thanks. Linda, as I recall, because I, I graduated from nursing school in 1970, uh, the reason why nurses engaged in collective bargaining in the first place was because of irreconcilable conflicts with rigid employers over things like working conditions and scheduling. And I always say that nurses love nursing, but they hate their jobs. What is the current state of nurse-employer relationships in Canada? Well, sometimes I hate to admit things haven't changed uh, that much. Uh, you're absolutely right. Nurses love their job. They love their profession, but they hate their working condition. Uh, and that hasn't changed. Why they became unionized 40 some years ago was mostly for working condition, for scheduling. You couldn't be married and be a nurse. You couldn't have children and be a nurse. Uh, the training of nursing was like uh, slave labor. You know, they'd go into a program and work two years without pay, without any working condition. We had no pension plans until uh, the late 80s, uh, I'd even say early 1990s when they start making sense because they expected this profession of women to be married all their life and husbands had pensions. So why would women have pensions? Uh, we changed that during the 1990s fights. But that, that's the, the, the biggest reason they got unionized. And that's still the main reason they stay unionized. We're the most educated profession. And we're at 91, 92% unionized in Canada. Mm -hmm. So very high rate, uh, and it's all about working condition and collective bargaining. Right. Thank you. I, I know that you're a passionate advocate for your members. What has the experience of the COVID-19 pandemic added to the current context of nurses' um, working conditions? And why should the public be concerned? 
Well, the public should be concerned because employers, and I don't want to generalize, uh, there are pockets of good employers and there are pockets of bad employers, but some of them have their heads in the sand. Some governments have their heads in the sand. You know, we knew that we had a shortage of nurses way before the pandemic, mm -hmm. and we were knocking at every door, but government took advantage of the goodwill of nurses. Uh, saying, oh, yeah, I know you're short, but, but it's okay. You'll do extra overtime. You'll move on. You'll stay on. What the pandemic has showed us is they've had enough. Uh, hardly met one nurse, uh, you know, 16, 17 months into the pandemic that is telling me if I couldn't, if I could get another job, I would leave. I would not sure. only leave my current job, uh, I would leave nursing. And that we've never seen before. We hear nurses working on certain heavy units. And for COVID, it would be the ER, the intensive care, the contract tracing. All of that would say, I've had enough. I'm changing units. Or I'll go get a master's degree and become a resource nurse. I'll go get a day job shift. And now they just had enough. They want to leave nursing. And you're seeing nurses insulted. You know, look at uh, what Ontario is doing. No respect at the uh, bargaining table, treating them like everyone else. In Alberta, it's even worse. And what the provincial government just announced uh, ye yesterday, that uh, if you're positive COVID, you won't even need to self-isolate. No masking in the general public. Well, that's an insult. To every healthcare worker, every nurse out there that has been fighting this pandemic and saying, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? And what mm -hmm. they're telling us is, I'm going to find another job. And government, that government anyway, is putting their heads in the sand and uh, wishing mm -hmm. for whatever. Yeah, I, I would agree, Linda, that um, in the 50 years I've been in nursing, I have never heard such a level of dissatisfaction and unhappiness. And I think some of it is um, that the social contract between nurses and their employers has been broken. Yeah. Uh, that, that psychological contract of, you know, you look after me and I look after the people that um, need services. Yeah, you're absolutely <laughs> right. It's that engagement to it. I yeah. always said uh, I started in 1983 at Georges Dumont in Moncton, the French uh, Regional Hospital. And I've been a Dumont nurse since then, because when I started, they made me feel I was part of the team. I was going to stay part of the team. And that's where, and even if my career took me at different aspect of, of nursing uh, and, and outside of Moncton too, I still felt that engagement to that employer. Today, there's none uh, there and employers don't care either. Yeah, and, and I think some of this is that nurses weren't engaged or involved in problem solving about the shortage of PPE, the personal protective equipment. They were basically just issued edicts that you can wear the same mask for a 12-hour shift or you don't need the personal protective equipment that you, as a professional, believe you need to create the appropriate safe environment for yourself, for patients and families. And I think nurses really did go that extra mile to try to look after patients, even, you know, using uh, technology to try to connect patients by iPhones or, or 
or uh, iPads just so that they could talk to their families. And, um, and they, and they had their vacations canceled and they had, uh, when they were working short and overtime, uh, and it, it, it really feels like all of that was just expected. Like some nurses were told, this is what you signed up for. Yeah. And, and the public doesn't realize that uh, when a province established emergency measures, you know, mm-hmm. it's emergency measures for all of us. You and I, we have to work at home. You yeah. and I couldn't go to a restaurant or shopping. But for nurses, for the healthcare workforce, yeah. it meant they had to go to work. They didn't know which shift they were going to work because all of the shifts, the rotation could change. They couldn't apply for another job. Their vacation was, well, maybe, and most since the last 17 months, it's been almost no vacation. The collective agreements across Canada were kind of parked. Yeah. And people don't get that. So that whole pressure, and when you were talking about nurses, you know, taking out the iPads, the phones, uh, for the patient, that's when we realize that uh, you go into a long-term care facility or a hospital or home care to get nursing care. And exactly. it's more than the bandage, the treatments, the prescription. It's that holistic care. And these educated professionals knew what to do. Yeah. But their hands were tied behind their backs by stupid, dangerous policies like on the PPEs. When you have to go to a premier or prime minister to beg that your workforce gets uh, the proper PPE, there's something wrong with the workplace. Yeah, it's almost like nurses were treated as a disposable asset. Disposable or we've always been there. I often call the workforce an elastic band because we will do go the extra mile. We will push. We will stretch ourselves. But it gets to a point that that elastic band breaks and we're seeing it in our studies pre-COVID when 30 percent plus 30 to 35 percent of the workforce. And it was the highest uh, survey study done on the mental health of nurses showed sign of uh, major depression. of uh, uh, PTSD, anxiety, and at different level, uh, suicide, isolation. These are the same level as police officers, correctional officers, and military officers. And it's the first time nursing was established. That was pre-COVID. The post-COVID results are telling us 60% are saying, I've had enough, I want to leave. Well, and and some of that has been because they haven't had enough time off in between, you know, like if you have a patient die and then there's another patient in bed as quickly as that person can be replaced and no time to debrief or to, uh, or to cope. And because nursing is a relational occupation, there's a connection with that person who died. It's not just an object. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we're, we're hearing about this um, in, other parts of the world like there was a study in Britain about nurses and uh, linking it to the overtime the forced overtime the lack of time off and um, just the lack of time for oneself I think the other thing too that is important for the public to understand is that these nurses went home to a second shift at home because you know we're predominantly a female profession so after that exhausting day you went home like every other 
woman in Canada who was trying to make sure that their family was safe and their kids got their uh, Zoom classes in and their homework done and, uh, you know, doing all of those things. That was an additional pressure that I think people didn't really realize. Oh, for sure. Uh, We'll only see, you know, when it's done and we're far from done. I mentioned earlier what was happening in Alberta. The biggest fear of nurses in Alberta right now uh, is that we're going to hit a fort wave and they're already burnt out. And they're saying, and this wave is one that we could have brought it down. We could have reduced it. And they're seeing this as a real dangerous uh, game that the governments are playing with them, with their their own professional work life, but also the lives of their, their loved one. And, and they're mad. They're just mad. Yeah, I think um, I think that we haven't really um, wrestled yet with what the potential impact is for health human resources. And what I keep hearing from people is that, yes, but a lot of people are applying to nursing school. But I don't think that's a very good measure. <laughs> no, it's because all of a sudden nursing, because of the pot banging at 7 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> and because of the stories of patients, like nursing has always been this beautiful profession. You mm-hmm. and I stayed in it. And for a long time, we've been promoting it for a long time, defending it in different avenues. It's an amazing profession. And it's an amazing job, too. Because it's not often you can go into one profession and change jobs, literally, when yeah. changing departments uh, or, or moving to the community or going into management or to education like you did. You know, there's so many opportunities. So all of that is exciting. But these new graduates are telling us, I don't want a full-time job. Yes. And I'm saying, you're 23 years old. You're telling me you cannot work. 35 to 37 hours a week. That's what a full-time job in nursing in Canada is. And, you know, I'm, I'm just imagining your eyes now because 35 to 37 hours a week is more than we regularly do in, in my day-to-day uh, job. <laughs> but it's because there's no flexibility. It's because if they want to get married, they can't get that week or their child is sick or they want to upgrade their education. There's no opportunities. The employer is saying you show up at 7 p.m. and you leave at 7 a.m., period. Uh, There's no flexibility uh, at all. And it's worse than it, it, it was when I graduated where we had float teams. You know, you always had extra nurses. If someone called in sick, there was always a replacement. But now you work short. Yeah. And now with the electronics, every nurse working will get a text. Do you want to work overtime? That's how they fill their lines in a rotation with overtime shift, which is a time and a half or double time. Mm -hmm. And then you wonder why we can't sustain a workforce. Uh, well, and in fact, the evidence is that overstaffing is actually cheaper, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because you're paying premium um, wages for for services that you could have had at a regular price. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's an it's an interesting problem. You know, we're, we heard, uh, for example, in the United States that over 400,000 nurses resigned from their jobs even before the pandemic started. 
And I believe I read a recent study in Ontario amongst practical nurses that suggested up to 30% of them are considering once the pandemic is over that they will resign from their jobs. So the public should be concerned about nursing human resources and access to care once this crisis is over. Yes, because even if uh, some say they can replace us with just about anything, uh, (laughs) we have to realize that the sicker you are, you need a higher level of skills and education. Simple as that. It doesn't mean that the registered nurse has to rule the the, the, the chicken goop here. You know, we're, we're not the BN of everything, but research is clear. The sicker you are, the more education training you need. So that is where the registered nurse and all the specialty behind his or her name. But I've never met an RN tell me that, uh, oh, there's too many healthcare workers helping uh, part of the team. And that's what the nursing concept, the nursing care is so big. You know, from the personal Mm -hmm. care worker to the staff that is cleaning the room, to the dietitian, to the whole team, it's part of nursing care. It's part of that holistic care of patient. Mm -hmm. But if you're really sick, you need that RN. And it's those RNs, it's those licensed practical nurse or in Ontario, it's registered practical nurses that are telling us we're leaving. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And that is dangerous. It's scary. And if I'd be a premier in any province, I would be working on that very quickly because that means closures of ERs, closures of uh, ORs, mm-hmm. and you might think, why of ORs? The public might think, but why would an OR close if there's not enough nurses? Means if you have a danger of going to an intensive care, there's no intensive care, you can't do major operations. If there's no nurse on the surgical unit, you can't put your patients upstairs. So that again reduces all the wait times. Well, I think that the the public in general doesn't understand that the reason why you're admitted to any institutional facility for care is because you need nursing care. Otherwise, you wouldn't be there. You'd be at home on home care or or you'd be, um, you know, looking after yourself. So um, the reason why we have acute care and long-term care facilities is because people need nursing care. And you go into facilities for quality and safety. That's what, you know, and yes, with technology today and the way they do surgeries and give treatments, we can do a lot more. You know, I remember, I'm sounding old, but I remember the days where you stayed two, three, five days after a delivery of a baby. I worked in labor delivery. You Mm -hmm. stayed in the hospital. Hip surgeries, they can go home the next day. You'd be in bed for seven, 10 days. Mm -hmm. But those are all progress. And, and we're not talking about when it goes well. It's when it doesn't go well. Yeah. And that home care, you need somebody to evaluate you. You know, it, it's all part of the, the, the big package. Yeah, that's right. When we talk about um, what retains nurses, what keeps nurses, what's going to make the new graduate who's coming out of a nursing program want to stay and commit to where they're working. We have a pretty good body of knowledge around that. You know, I'm thinking of some of the magnet hospital literature in the United States. 
about, um, you know, they, there's like 14 criteria that they have that say, you know, if you put these things in place, you're going to be a competitive employer. Mm-hmm. So um, what, from your perspective, are the things that make a nurse want to stay in the profession with a particular employer? Yeah, in Canada, we're almost allergic to any uh, title, like the magnet hospitals, Mm -hmm. like nurse-patient ratios or safe staffing models, or it's almost that, oh, we'll find our own. Well, our own is not working. What the... Uh, spicy nurses, which I call the older nurses are the spicy nurses to the new grads are telling us is work-life balance, which there are mega studies on that. If you can be happy at work, happy at home, it it just fulfills you. So we need better language on that. Honestly, we need to uh, be treated the way federal uh, government employees are treated, uh, the way university uh, uh, workers are treated, any other work. Yeah, exactly. And it's also treated in a way to respect my clinical, my professional judgment. Yeah. Just like if I go back to the uh, the pandemic, mm-hmm. we knew what PPEs we needed. Right. When you work in that environment, you knew, but you had a manager that would hide the PPEs behind their mm-hmm. locked door, behind their desk. Uh, like really, it was a nonsense. We know how to deal with a crisis, with an emergency, with a code 99. That's what we've been trained, educated to do. But we were told to do something else, which well, didn't make any sense. Yeah, and nurses should have been engaged and involved in that decision-making mm-hmm. because yeah. we knew there was a shortage. And I think that if nurses had been engaged and involved in the decision-making around what could we safely do, that would feel better. But just being told this is what you're going to get was yeah. very demeaning. And I think it was demeaning uh, as much as the nurses unions, you know, we took it as a big success, but it was demeaning to have a Linda Silas of the world go negotiate point of care risk assessment with government. When point of care risk assessment are basic is what you do every time you walk into a room or you walk into a house you do it automatically. It, it, it's in your DNAs on how do I protect myself and how do I protect the patients, families, et cetera, and others. And we had to go to the highest levels of government to get that written in Public Health Agency of Canada's guidance for hospitals and long-term care. That, we couldn't call it a success because no. it, it, it was this like irritating insult. Uh, uh, You know, higher education, every other professional groups, and we're hearing that from our our new grads and our mid-career, our more spicy nurses are telling me, continue working on my pension, I just want to get out of here. But the mid-career and new grads are saying, how come I have no clinical advancement, no way yeah. to uh, to up my education level, like if I'd be in education or if I'd be in any other profession? And then yeah. governments need to start thinking, if I want to keep my workforce healthy, is there's the physical mental health, but there's that professional mental health, uh, professional health yeah. also in continuing education and respect for your clinical judgment. Well, I think in some ways, when I reflect back on the 50 years that I've been in in, uh, the profession, 
that in, when I first went into nursing, most nurses didn't have a full career. I think I'm the first generation of nurses that didn't work for a few years and get married yeah. and retire from nursing. And so in some ways, I think the system has not adjusted to the fact that they have a professional nursing workforce. Yeah. And, and what does a professional workforce require as knowledge workers? So yeah. it's, it's it partly, I think, that, that there's, you know, there was a sense that this was a transition kind yeah. of occupation at one point. And, and that's why it took us so long to improve our pension plans. Right. And honestly, our pension plans on paper are excellent across the country. But the fact that they do break services, to have a well, good pension plan... You need yeah. the years of service. Yeah, so you if have you to break, take the time yeah. off to have a family because you can't manage to balance your life. Exactly. Yeah. And you get interrupted. That's right. And there's no provision in your employment. Uh, you know, if I look at union leaves, mm-hmm. uh, I have a union leave for my employer. Uh, and my now pension wasn't negotiated way back then because that's 2003. But everything else was protected. We don't have that for if I need a leave to go take care of my family or if I need a leave for continuing education. Uh, and, and we need to build on those progressive way of thinking for a workforce. But it also invests in the health profession. It invests in the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. The better, the more satisfied your employees are. Because there's, there's research that links nurses' job satisfaction with patient outcomes. Yes. So this is this is all part of uh, investing. Yeah. We're and, doing uh, a lot of work with Dr. Pat Armstrong from York University on long-term care, and her uh, quote is: "The quality, the working condition, equals the quality of care." Yes. And so, I, yeah. So it's the same thing: happy nurse, happy patient, uh, and yeah. we have to uh, bring that to reality. Right. We're wrapping up now, Linda, with our discussion. And what three key strategies or key uh, pieces of advice or actions for change would you like to share with decision makers who might listen to this podcast? Um, And I know that when I ask you this, you probably have a list of many more things. But what three things do you think would make a huge difference uh, to recruitment and retention of nurses in Canada? So I'll start at the federal level. We need a federal agency uh, on health human resource. Mm-hmm. We are 10% of employed Canadian and we do no planning. We have close to no, no statistics. We're planning in the dark and we wonder why for you 50 years later, we're still asking that question. So the federal government needs to bring the, the heads of health human resource together and do better planning. We need full-time employment that is decent and respecting the healthcare worker, respecting the nurse. And recognition of nursing leadership at every level. Um, and that's at the bedside, too. Right. Uh, I was questioned that's recently. leadership is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's about mm-hmm. rewarding in your job. Eh? If you're mm-hmm. always asked, oh, do you want to go take a leader? leadership position in the hospital and and I'd be thinking well I think I'm a pretty good leader right where I am Mm -hmm. recognize it and and it's not always what you could do next it's what you're doing now 
and the nurse patient ratio, the safe staffing. We need tools that will help manager and the nursing team to say, what kind of skills do we need tomorrow morning? But all mm -hmm. of a sudden, how do we change then if the acuity, if patients get sicker uh, or we get a nurse that, that is absent, how do we change it on a dime? How do we make sure quality and safety becomes the uh, number one aspect of our nursing care? I think nurse-patient ratios is important because um, I, I read something recently that in the UK, prior to the pandemic, when they were experiencing a shortage, one of the things that the NHS committed to was nurse-patient ratios, and over 3,000 nurses came back to work just on that basis that their patient workload would be reasonable. Yeah, we started this work oh, almost 10, 15 years ago, uh, based on the UK, based on California, on Dr. Linda Aiken's work and, you know, moving and Australia has it too and saying nurses want a flood, the floodgate to stop. Mm -hmm. Say that, you know, OK, I have four, I have seven, whatever the, the magic number is, that it will stop. And they also need to know if I need help and nurse X is not busy next door, he or she will come and help me and it's do what they can. It's part of that team uh, and, and the value of their work uh, needs to be better recognized. Uh, some days we do progress and others, uh, it's all based on dollars and cents. And we have to take away the fact that some governments believe nursing is a cost. It's an investment. Yeah. As you said it earlier, if we invest, if we have more nurses, into a workplace, we will get better care, we won't get patient readmitted, we mm -hmm. won't get complication, et cetera, et cetera, and that's better for everyone. And when you're about 70% of a healthcare budget, uh, we should be paid more attention to it. Yeah, I, I think that sense that nursing is this giant cost center and every mm -hmm. institution really needs to be turned on its head. Thank you very much uh, for your participation in this conversation uh, today, Linda. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, and I hope that your three key messages get to the right people. And thanks to Longwood Publishing for supporting this podcast, and please share this link with your colleagues and others in your networks. Thanks very much again, Linda Salas. Perfect. Stay safe, stay strong.